invite you to take out your Bibles and turn uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5. It's on page 954 of uh, your uh, Pew Bible, if you're using that this morning, page 954. As you're turning there, uh, I'll point you to uh, the uh, title of the sermon, The Exciting Doctrine of Church Discipline. Uh, and I, I struggled to find an appropriate title, and so I wanted to grab your attention and uh, try to trick you into thinking that this was actually an exciting thing for us to discuss. Uh, in many ways, it's not. Uh, in many ways, this is one of those topics that most preachers would avoid. But this is precisely why we go through books of the Bible and we don't just do topical sermons. Because if I had to do a topical sermon, I would never choose the topic of church discipline uh, to preach from. I actually would never also probably choose the other topic that's found in this section of sexual immorality. So you find both of those two topics both very difficult uh, to deal with all in one, and that's why we do what we do, because this is part of the whole counsel of God's Word. All of God's Word has been given to us, and it is necessary for us. It is sufficient for us, and we hold to that. We believe it. Uh, so uh, this passage, even if in its obtuseness and awkwardness and difficulty, this is God's Word that He has given to you that is for your good. So give attention to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand his word. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is by your words, through this means, that you have chosen to give life to your people. Father, we are dependent upon you to give us life, and I pray that we would receive your life today from the work of the Spirit through your word, illuminating to us the glory of Christ in your grace that you have shown us through him. Help us to see Jesus here, even here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So why is church important? There's a lot of people in the world today that would tell you, well, church isn't important and we shouldn't go. I'm happy that here in Clinton, Louisiana, at least, that there's a sizable population of people that believe that church absolutely is important and is absolutely indeed vital. But if you ask them, even them, why church is important, they'll give you a lot of different answers. They'll say, well, church is important because that's where we hear from the Lord. Church is important because that's where we fellowship with God's people. Church is important uh, maybe even because God has commanded that we gather together as his people and we fellowship together and we sit under the preaching of the word. But I would argue 
that almost no one would tell you that church is important because of church discipline. As a matter of fact, the doctrine of church discipline is so far removed from our understanding of what the church does that probably most of us give it no thought whatsoever. But historically, that has not been the case. Historically, there have been three marks of the church, three things that have identified a true church of Christ. Three ways that that God's people were taught, this is how you know whether or not that church is a true church of Jesus Christ, whether or not you should attend that church. The first one is the, the true and right preaching of the Word of God. The second one is the right administration of the sacraments. And the third one is church discipline. That it is a church that carries out church discipline. Now Paul is going to deal with this topic in the midst of a specific issue that's going on in the Corinthian church. And Paul is doing something interesting in chapter 5. He's going from the divisions that have been taking place into a specific sin, a specific problem. But Paul is connecting the two because he's saying this sin of sexual immorality is actually one of the things that's causing division among you because it stems from arrogance. And that is the whole problem in Corinth. The people are arrogant. They're arrogant about their preferences. They say, well, this is what I like, and what I like is better than what you like. Right? That's arrogance. And then there's also people that are saying, well, they're arrogant in how they promote themselves and build themselves up. And they say, well, you should listen to me because I'm better than you. That's arrogance. That's pride. But now, even here, Paul says this issue of sexual immorality and even the lack of dealing with that issue comes from and stems from the issue of pride. They are so proud of who they are, they don't think they have to be concerned about sin. They think so highly of themselves that they think that God will not deal with them according to their sin because they're good enough. Well, that indeed is pride. It's an incredible thing to think about that if you go to a church where church discipline is not uh, being done, the main problem there is that there is pride in that church. I want to look at this passage in three ways this morning as we attempt to uh, tease out uh, this doctrine of church discipline from this passage. Uh, First of all, in here, in verses 1 and 2, you see the principle of church discipline as Paul lays it out in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, you see the priority of church discipline in verses 3 through 5a. And then finally, we're going to see the purpose of church discipline at the very end in 5b. So principle, priority, and purpose. We've gotten back to our P's, our Presbyterian P's. Here we go. The principle of church discipline, verses 1 and 2. Paul says there's there's something interesting that should be happening in the Corinthian church that is not taking place. There is this sin that is going on, and there should be a natural reaction. There should be a revulsion against this sin. Verse 5 or chapter 5, 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. That word pagan probably has a better, it actually is the word Gentile. I don't know why our translators put the word pagan there instead of Gentile, but essentially Paul is making the the demarcation between Jewish people and Gentiles, even though most of the people in Corinth, in the Corinthian church, probably were Gentiles. He's saying 
that this sin isn't even tolerated. It is considered a sin even outside of the church. There should be a natural revulsion against this sin. Everyone, however, and I want you to understand this, in this world today, everyone, Christian, non-Christian, pagan, heathen, you know, whoever it is, everyone has a doctrine of sin. Everyone believes that there is such a thing as sin. Now, they might define sin differently, but everyone believes that sin is real, and everyone believes that there should be punishment for that sin. I just need to throw that out there because that's one of the underlying principles that Paul is laying out for. Sin is real, and everyone believes in sin. Even the Gentiles would not put up with this sin, which is why it's so shocking to Paul that a church of Jesus Christ is putting up with this sin. A church who have called themselves holy. Now God calls His people holy. Leviticus 19 verse 18, He says, You are holy, or to be holy, even as I am holy. That is the expectation for God's people. There is a call to God's people to be a holy people. And the Corinthian believers, and they were believers, they were true believers in Christ, had taken on that ideal that they themselves were set apart that they were holy as well. And they were very proud of that being set apart and being called holy. Paul is shocked that this people who have called themselves holy are then putting up with this sin. What is this sin? Well, you see it there uh, very basically, very quickly. What is this sin? This sin is likely a son is having an illicit affair with his father's wife, his own stepmother. And more than likely from this, this man is in the church, but likely the father and the stepmother are not in the church. You see that? You see that because the only one that's being dealt with here is that man. If they were also in the church, they also would be dealt with. But Paul is dealing with this man in his illicit affair with his stepmother. And he says, what should they do because of this sin? What should their attitude be? Their attitude should be one of mourning, that this is going on in their midst. But what are they? This is shocking. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. Now, who is he talking to? Is he talking to uh, the man? Is he talking to the people of the church? Well, he's talking to both because the man is a member of the church. There is an arrogance that is coming out of this church. That there are some in the church that know about this sin. That this sin has become what is called a notorious sin. It is a public sin that everyone in the church knows about it. And what are they doing? They are bragging about it. They are laughing about it. And they are acting as though this sin is no big deal. So, you might say to yourself, well, I mean, here's Paul. And Paul is known as kind of a cranky guy, you know. He... He seems to always get up on the wrong side of the bed, and he's always going after people. If only the church could be kinder and gentler like Jesus Christ. If only the church would treat people like Jesus treated people. You'll hear that argument from people that are out in the world, and they say, you know, I don't go to church because the church doesn't follow the kindness and the gentleness of Jesus. 
Well, I hope if anybody says that to you or if you're in a conversation about sin and that sort of thing and people say, well, Jesus treated people who sin differently. He treated them with kindness. He treated them um, in, with gentleness. Hopefully you'll respond to them and say, well, you know, Jesus dealt with sin like this. He called people a brood of vipers. He called people like he said that they were dead men, right? They were, or, I'm sorry, he said the Pharisees were like men who were whitewashed tombs with dead men inside of them, right? Because of their sin, that's how Jesus dealt with them. Uh, in Matthew, and I'll have you turn there real quick, in Matthew chapter 18, uh, go back uh, just a few pages to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, looking at verses 15 through 20. This is after the transfiguration of Jesus. He is marching to Jerusalem to be crucified for the sins of his people. And in, on the way, he is teaching them. And he's finally getting very practical about the way that his disciples should act after he's gone. He's been teaching a lot of things in shadows. But now he begins to teach things very clearly. And he says this is the way church discipline within the church should happen. Meaning... Church discipline is Jesus' idea. Church discipline is Jesus' instruction to the church. Church discipline wasn't something that was invented by cranky old Paul. No, it was invented and taught by kind and gentle Jesus Christ. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. See, this is church discipline the way that Jesus intends it. He says there's a couple of different steps in church discipline. The first one is if you know of a sin that your brother has committed either against you or publicly, you are to go to him privately and confront him on that sin. If he doesn't listen at that point, if he does, praise the Lord, you've regained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, then you take a witness or two with you so that they can hear the confrontation. They can hear the facts so that they can establish whether or not what you are saying is true. And the person has the right to then go back and to defend himself in front of these witnesses. And then if it is true, the things that you're saying in this sin is, has actually taken place, if he still doesn't listen, what are you to do? You are to take him to the church. It's been traditionally understood uh, of the taking him to the leaders of the church, even as we saw uh, with we what we read earlier in that important text where church discipline is taking place. In the Old Testament church, you're taking the people to the leadership of the church. Take them to the church, and if he still doesn't listen, Jesus says, cast them out. Okay? Jesus' idea is to uh, perform church discipline in that way. Now, I don't have time to go into it, but then there's a couple of things that are taken out of context very uh, often uh, in this. You see at the very end, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. What's the context of that verse? That very 
uh, popular verse that is used all the time to justify the gathering of Christians together. The context is church discipline. And what Jesus is saying is, where two or three witnesses are gathered together in the church, under the authority of the church, I am with them in their judgment against a brother or sister in Christ. That verse is for the sake of church discipline. So be careful whenever you use that verse and say, well, two or three are gathered. Are you doing church discipline? (laughs) That's the point of that verse. So uh, all that to say, church discipline is Jesus's idea. Jesus sets the principle of church discipline. So what's the application to us here as we see Paul instituting church discipline or asking for the Corinthian church to institute church discipline? The application is church discipline is very much a part of Jesus's plan for the church. Jesus does not give options to not do church discipline, but that does not mean it should be done flippantly. It needs to be done carefully in the way that the scriptures have outlined for us. And in other passages, we're told that it needs to be done carefully with a lot of humility because the church is full of sinners. All of us here are sinners, and all of us need to be under the discipline of the church. I, as your pastor, am under the discipline of the church. I am not operating apart from the discipline of the church. The very reason why I have the right to stand up here today is because I also am under the discipline of the church. And I have to receive church discipline just like you have to receive church discipline. This is for sinners in the church. And God says we need to be reminded of this. Be holy as I am holy. That doesn't mean that we're going to be perfected in this life. That does not mean that we will be or live up to the perfect ideal of holiness, but it does mean that God calls his people to live lives of holiness. Church discipline is important. You see the principle there of church discipline. Not Paul's idea, but Jesus' idea. Secondly, you see the priority of discipline in verses 3 through 5a, the priority of discipline. Now, what do I mean when I say that? Well, when should church discipline take place in this specific context when Paul is dealing with this? Verse 3, or actually right before verse 3 and verse 2, he says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. When should it take place? He says it should have already Taken place. In verse 3, for though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. What Paul is talking about here is what's called excommunication. That this man should be excommunicated from the church for his notorious and public sin. He should be removed from the communion of the body of God's people. Now, how does Paul say that should take place? I, don't, I want you to understand something, that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. That he is one of the bigwigs of the church. That he has authority to act in the name of Jesus Christ by himself. That is not authority that has been given to any of the rest of the church in certain cases. But in this case, Paul as an apostle can act by himself and can pronounce judgment and could He could have excommunicated this man by himself. But notice he did not do that in this case. What does Paul do? 
Paul says, now I have pronounced judgment upon him, but here's what needs to happen in verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that word assembled means as the church. When you have gathered as the church in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord, you are to deliver the man over to Satan. The priority of church discipline. Who's supposed to do it? The church is supposed to do it. Church discipline, even though it begins with one individual going to another individual, as Jesus outlined in Matthew chapter 18, it is the work of the church. And Paul isn't doing this merely to be harsh to this man. Remember what we saw last week, that Paul was doing this because he saw himself as a father. What are fathers meant to do? Fathers are meant to discipline their children. They're meant to discipline their children so that their children know how to work and operate in the world. That is the way discipline is supposed to take place. He is not merely trying to be mean to this man, but he's trying to show this man the discipline uh, of the Lord as a father. Again, Paul has the authority. He could have just kicked him out, but he doesn't do that. He says, when you gather together, you need to do this together as a church. And, um, and Paul even understands that he himself needs to be confronted from time to time. Uh, you can think about what Paul does with uh, the apostle Peter as well. Both of these guys, big wigs in the church, having and speaking for uh, Jesus, you know, in the place of Jesus in the early church. And Peter shows racism in the church uh, uh, at Galatia. And Peter, uh, I mean, Paul confronts Peter for his racism. For his sin. Peter is not above confrontation. Peter is not above church discipline. Paul says this has to be done. It needs to take place. It needs to take place within the church. And it needs to happen immediately. Paul expects the church to practice church discipline. Now, if I had time, uh, if I had a couple of hours, I would go into and launch into the beauty of the Presbyterian form of church government. I love talking about the, the Presbyterian form of church government. Uh, it is set up to protect, but also to provide church discipline. It is set up for the sake of perfecting the people of God. I think it's the most biblical form of church government, and I can make that argument to you biblically. I think Paul is demonstrating that even from this text, but I don't have time to go into that. But I want you to understand something that Paul says. There is a moral necessity for the church to perform church discipline immediately over this man. What's the application to us? Well, the application is that a healthy church will practice church discipline. A healthy church will identify the sin, which is a cancer in the church, and will remove the cancer. Paul says that they are to do this. Now, how does this happen? How does church discipline happen? Church discipline can happen both formally and if informally, um, formally meaning uh, in the ways that uh, Paul has outlined, and there's actual structure that is to that. But most church discipline happens informally. As a matter of fact, most church discipline happens in the gathered body of people as we sit under the preaching of the Word of God. You are being disciplined. I am being disciplined right now as we are under the authority of the Word of God. That's called formational discipline. 
You are being discipled and disciplined even now. That's how most, most discipline takes place. A lot of discipline also takes place like pulling somebody aside and just mentioning something and saying something as a way to point them back to Christ. But there are also formal ways that church discipline has to take place. And it is sad when a church has to do those things. But those things are absolutely necessary for the health of the church. Now, in saying these things, this is not now me saying, here's what's going to happen in this church, that the elders are going to begin to go through and nitpick your life and point out to you every single sin that you are committing for the sake of calling you to holiness. That is not what is supposed to take place in a church. But as sin becomes public, as sin becomes uh, known, these are things that have to be confronted and have to take place up to and including the final step of excommunication. All right. Now, what's the purpose of church discipline? Notice what Paul says here. He says some terrifying words. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That is terrifying. What is he saying? He is saying that you are to hand this man and all of his sin over to Satan. That is, that you are to excommunicate him from the church, which provides for him protection from Satan, from the evil one. You understand something, that in the sphere of the church, you have protection from the evil one. That you are under the discipline of God, but you have not been handed over to Satan. And here, he says, hand this man over to Satan. That's why church membership is so important because you are willingly saying I'm going to be under the authority and protection of this body of believers, those who have the spiritual oversight over my soul. That's why it's so important for you to be a member of a church so that you have the right and benefit of that spiritual protection. Why would you willingly then excommunicate yourself from that protection? It's just a challenge for you to think about your involvement in the church, your membership in the church. So what's the point of church discipline? What's the purpose of it? Why does he do this? Why does he say these things? Well, look at the very end there. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Why, do we, why should the church practice church discipline? It's not, again, to be mean or harsh or because we don't love people. It's actually because we love people that we practice church discipline. You see what Paul is saying here about this man. Excommunicate him from the church so that he learns what it means to be outside of the church, to have his spirit endangered. The hope is that this man will be saved on the last day. The purpose of church discipline is for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the salvation of sinners. That's why we practice church discipline. It's not to teach a lesson. It's not to show this man who has the authority or the power. But it's for his salvation. It's what we all need. Paul wants this man's salvation. And he needs to understand that his sin is endangering his soul. And Paul is also saying this, that even this man, even this man with this grotesque sin is not beyond the grace of God for salvation. That even 
discipline is part of God's grace to this man. And he actually has the highest of hopes that this man actually is a Christian and that he will return to the Lord in repentance. So what's the application to you? Well, do you want the protection of the church? Do you realize the danger that your soul is in? Do you realize your great need to have someone overseeing your soul? I mean, if you do see those things, why wouldn't you willingly submit yourself to the authority of the church and the protection of the church? Do you know then your heart's own tendencies towards sin? And do you recognize and see your sin in this man's sin? Because if you think, well, I could never do that. I would never commit that kind of sin. You don't know your heart. Because the reality is, is that all of us here today are this man who deserved to be handed over to Satan. But it's only by the grace of God that you have seen your great need and that you have remained with him, that you have repented of your sin. Do you know your heart's tendencies? Do you know and recognize that you need church discipline and it's for the good of your soul that you have it? In conclusion, this is not easy stuff. This is the hardest stuff to deal with. But it's necessary. It's necessary for you to be caught up short in thinking about these things. Maybe even to gristle a little bit under this teaching. Maybe for you even to push back. And if you want to push back, that's more than fine. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about these things Because I want you to understand that you need this. Not for the sake of being perfect, but for the sake of being perfected, sanctified, becoming more and more like Christ. Now, we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper, and it is our benefit that we get to partake of the Lord's Supper. It is for your benefit, and it's for your strength and encouragement that we are coming to the table today. The Lord's Supper is inviting you to search your heart to see if there's any way that is offensive before God and to repent of that sin and to ask for Him to show you His mercy, to give you His grace that you can partake and be reminded of all that Christ has done to welcome you into His family. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to prepare our hearts to meet with Him now. Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word today and we thank You, Lord, Uh, that you have encouraged our hearts by it, that you have encouraged us to see more clearly uh, the need of church discipline, but also the glory of Christ within it. Lord, I pray that you would work within the preaching of your word uh, for your glory and for your sake. And even now as we approach this table, that we would not come in arrogance, but in humility. Come, uh, that we would come knowing uh, of your love to us, love that is not deserved, but love that you have given because of your grace. Help us now as we come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.